Welcome to the Yucatastrophe, where we meander through politics, pop culture, church and society to consider true human ends and how life may be enchanted. My name is Joel Harrison. I'm joined here, as always, by Dave Taylor, my co-host. We, this week, Dave, is uh, very kindly allowing me to babble on about a book I've written, um, a book that David himself has read. David told me he was reading the book. From where, David? <laughs> I know where you I was staying at a at a a a uh, desacralized uh, convent in the Blue Mountains. Yes, yeah, so this is that's one thing that's wrong. <laughs> but you're reading it specifically. You'd you'd put out candles and petals. <laughs> Because what you don't know about David <laughs> is that he basically gallivants around the greater New South Wales region, going from bathtub to bathtub. <laughs> That's his thing. See, David, you don't know this about him, but he's obsessed with bathtubs and swimming pools. Yeah. If you have a swimming pool at your house, he will invite himself over. <laughs> Ironically, well, I don't know if it's ironic, but strangely, in contrast, mortally afraid of the ocean. <laughs> How do you form these snap judgments? It's true. It's true. You you frolic in a pool for hours on end, but the waves of an ocean, they scare you something massive. Where, have we ever been anywhere where there's been a pool? Yes. Where, where have you got this? Yes. Yes. I remember we went to uh, Barbara. Barbara, Barbara. Ah, uh, right. Place. Yeah. And you were staying there and it was just like utopia for you. Yeah, because it was like... High 30s every day. You're just living up at the pool, this cosmopolitan life. I think there was even a dog. Was there a dog? No, there was five cats. Oh, five cats. (laughs) But then when we went to the beach, we we went out to State of Pearl Beach once Mm. and like a wave hit you and you fell over. Oh, Sarah. Do you know what I hate about the beach? The sand. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Sand. Is it It because it gets in everything? It gets everything. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. it gets into everything. Of course. Yeah. Anyway, so there you got there you got it. So I was very happy to receive a photo of Dave reading my book in the bar, which is just as you know, it puts him in a good frame of mind, I guess. When you say re- getting a photo of me reading in the bath, it wasn't kind of like covering my unmentionables, <laughs> strategic bubbles. <laughs> it was sitting on the edge of a bar. Oh, I see. Oh. Yeah, um, yeah. So they, they, they. Well, the go. book seems to be the book doesn't seem to be water damaged. So mm. I find that notion ridiculous that somebody would read in a bath. The sheer danger posed to the book is just <laughs> shows a complete disregard for the word. <laughs> oh gosh! What well, are we doing? We're talking. We're continuing our discussion of your stupid book. <laughs> oh, stupid book! You know what he actually said to me? He sent me a message when he read it, basically saying you needed like a PS. <laughs> If if you everyone afterwards say because you thought it was you thought it was a quite a provocative book I guess we said this last week but it was yes but it you thought the style of it I guess no it wasn't the style of it it was just I I am unaccustomed and I tried to explain this to you a million times what I meant by this was that I'm unaccustomed to reading academic literature where I would think I was talking specifically about chapter five uh, where you explicitly say that this account and which we'll describe in a bit, um, do- doesn't meet standards of public reason, but, but nonetheless are rational. Um, that's not something I'm used to reading in academic literature, that this is not based on premises that, that are universal. Um, well, hold on, that's a, you need to qualify that, because I clearly would think this is universal, 
right? As in, it is, it is it universal is, it, claim. It, it's universal in the sense that it's true. Yes, but I don't, I don't, I don't subject it to a bar of what people call public reason, which yeah. is you know in this notion that we must put aside our um, particularities, particularities, our fundamental conceptions of the good, in order to argue for some at some other bar of reason, like you know liberal rights for yep. example or something something that we can overlap in our agreement on yes um and i say it doesn't satisfy that but i i don't think anything satisfies that so yeah. um so yeah so it's a non-foundationless yeah now, there's, there is a way. sentence that that seems to just say it doesn't feel these right here and there you go <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, but uh, but that's a fascinating point in itself because yeah i mean others would pick up on this as well that it um so much of our academic enterprise is about fitting within sort of Habermasian mm. intersubjective reason or uh, Rawlsian public reason, or it's about sort of what you'd call kind of refining uh, procedural liberalism or yep. something like that, right? Um, and um, But that seems to be about a certain category of writing, like especially in political science and some forms of philosophy. Mm. But others wouldn't be... Like, others wouldn't find it problematic. And actually, I think as a matter of, and I say this at the start of the book, as a matter of political practice and how we actually experience our common life together, we typically don't actually demand that people put aside convictions and so on and when the arguments. And, and, you know, others will talk about now how what we need is precisely a noisy argument over what is the shape of our shared Mm. life. Yeah. So, let's let's park that because I want to return to this point about um, how how public reason works with a particularist account of religious liberty. So, we want to end up there. But I'd like to kind of go back to what we were talking about a little bit um, last episode. So, you were given an account of developments in conceptions of what religion is, uh, that it is more and more understood to be um, an expression of individual authenticity um, or, um, I don't know, people's pursuits of highest concerns or or something Mm. like that. Uh, and uh, then we also talking about how um, the 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 religious was distinguished from the secular um, throughout history um, until we get to today, where the secular is, uh, or, or rather, that religious is defined by its non secularity. That that there's a that religion is almost defined by its differentiation from the mm-hmm. secular. The secular is this neutral space. Um, uh, free from uh, discourse around. And that presides over these now private religious interests, right? Yeah. In a way that then has to uh, try and enforce and manage um, individual claims and potentially does so against sort of thick religious commitments. Yeah. And so one of the things that you mentioned in your book is how this leads to a particular understanding of religion that's that you describe as a spiritualization of the subjective. Mm. Um, could you explain a, a little bit by, about what you mean by that? Because I think it, that has some very interesting implications for a lot of what we discuss on this program, actually, um, the way in which um, we can sac- sacralize um, different parts of life um, that almost lead to a form of idolatry even. Yeah, so the, the phrase spiritualizing of subjectivity is, is not mine. It's from Graham Ward. Graham Ward is the um, Regis Professor of Theology at, at Oxford. Um, and he traces, you know, our understanding of true religion mm. across time. And 
and says, you know, when you get to someone like Paul Tillich in which religion becomes one's ultimate concern, there then rises a, a sort of affair um, that it that it's papering over nothing. Mm. Um, but we still have this desire for ultimacy or this desire for depth, yeah. you know, so people talk about deep commitments and so on um, or integrity or um, experiences of some sort of transcendence. Mm. And so Ward says, well, what we now see with that is a, a, a kind of um, what enters into that vacuum is is, is a kind of um, um, consumer culture, right? Mm. In which um, uh, we both pastiche together the the idioms and the practices of traditional religions um, and put them into new forms that are baptizing our own experiences of subjectivity, or our own experiences of transcendence. But at the same time, we also experience consumption itself in a sort of religious manner. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the example he draws actually from Naomi Klein originally about when we're consuming Nike shoes, we're yeah. not just consuming the shoe itself. You know, this has a sort of yeah. Marxist thread to it, but we're not consuming the shoe itself, but the experience of the shoe yeah, and, right. uh, and a notion of transcendent athleticism, for yeah. example. Yeah. Um, he talks about, you know, um, Starbucks managers... CEOs who say that they're part of a um, contemporary enterprise to try and make a connection with your soul. Yeah. Um, various advertising campaigns that talk explicitly in terms of true religion and making a connection to the person as a kind of, you know, divine life um, of, um, you know, so um, there's the brand of clothing, true religion. Mm. There's uh, ice creams that appeal to deadly sins, you know, yeah, all yeah. this sort of language. Yep. And taking it quite seriously that, in fact, this is actually how a lot of people experience religiosity now, yeah. both both in the sort of um, new spirituality, so what Courtney Bender calls the new metaphysicians, you know, yep. those who are part of wellness industries, for example, but actually generally people in general. Mm. Um, you know, William Kavanagh has this great line in one of his pieces about um, people who burst into a Best Buy on Black Friday, you know, mm. the day after Thanksgiving, are hardly disenchanted. That's right. Um, they are experience. They are. They've identified what is their primary desires, mm. and now they're u- they using goods that have been marketed to them to try and cultivate this sense yes. of authenticity. For example, uh, or Taylor talks about you know corporate culture marshalling mutual displays of identity. Yeah. Um, and the idea there being, you know, we could think of ourselves as pursuing our own narrative, our own individual authenticity, but actually what then, to take the language of Dworkin, what grips us in mm. order to cultivate that authenticity is often just a consumer culture. Yeah. And so, and I, I, I'm just interested oh, in just this the point. Last point. Just the last point on that, the spiritualizing <laughs> subjectivity, sorry. It also points to how these movements of secularization, when we privatize religion and we see it mm. then as just simply individual expressions or yeah. pursuits of authenticity, gives rise to these new forms of religiosity yeah. themselves. So, secularization is never divorced from its own sort of iterations of religion. Mm. I mean, uh, this is of interest to me because it's not disconnected from our discussion of narcissism a couple of episodes ago, um, and when we were thinking about well, what 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 could be at what could be behind this um, increase since the nineteen seventies of um, narcissism um, as a diagnosis, and surely it has to be something around. There has to be some sort of connection between this slow slow. Um, uh, divinization of the consumer impulse, so that the the consumer desire, the 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 manu- the the desire for a con- consumer product, essentially becoming a stand-in for the voice of God, mm. um, 
and that in itself turning turning um, our desires for some obtainable object into a kind of prophetic voice mm. that surely need has to have some sort of narcissistic element to it um and i you know i think there's a there's a fascinating uh discussion uh our friend matthew tan who i think we've mentioned a few times has a brilliant um essay on christology and pornography um that uh i can't remember which publication it is but i'm sure you'll be able to find it i think we've shared it on um social media but he talks about how one of the hallmarks of um, our contemporary age and pornography is a, a, an emblem of this, that the, um, the potential uh, has, has um, surpassed the actual mm. um, uh, in our hierarchy, um, our ontological or metaphysical hierarchy, because we always want to be longing. We always need to be longing and pursuing some sort of desire and because our desire is the voice of God um, in the consumer market. This is kind of no, a, no. A, so, aside so actually, from what, I, what we want to be talking no, about. No, but, but, but like, uh, so there's a, a, f- a very important legal case in which the Supreme Court of Canada, the majority starts talking about religion is not static, it is fluid, it is this, because it's saying it's about individual cultivation, right? But it's yeah. fluid and static. And that, again, it echoes uh, sort of a conception of the market, right? Yeah. Because the point there, as you're saying, is not desire itself, but to stimulate desire, right? Mm. To stimulate continual desire to not reach satisfaction, but mm. to continually defer to satisfaction yeah. so you continue to buy, right? And so what you get, and this then affects on questions of religious liberty, is again, it's a kind of flattening out because mm. what you have is supposed heterogeneity, right? Thousand flowers may bloom. Mm. People can pursue these individual experiences of transcendence, whether it's through an HD television yeah. or through, you know, mass or whatever. Um, but they're sort of all the same in that they're all part of the same um, abstract idea of mm. an individual's pursuit of depths of commitments or whatever it is, or authenticity. And so it's heterogeneous, but at, but at a more fundamental level, it's almost everything is actually quite homogenous, mm. right? It's the same thing with our personal expressions, I think. Yeah. We all dress and we all you know think we're cultivating these personal identities, but actually we're all quite blandly uniform. Yeah. Yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah and... Uh, you know, one 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 of the ones I like is how people pride themselves on being spiritual, but rather than religious, because the assumption there is that religious is um, to be religious is a type of conformism, whereas to be spiritual um, is is pursuing individual authenticity. Not realizing that our entire culture now is based on just that conception of spirituality. Right. So, <laughs> so, so this is so this is a, a current that runs through my yeah. book is is trying to say, you know, these ideas of religious liberty that you see from these liberal egalitarian writers, I think they're very much either explicitly or at least implicitly just simply cultivating and echoing mm. uh, consumer markets, yeah. right? And so it raises the question, how do we want to live? So when Dworkin says, we need a new understanding of the res publica as simply this all political authority that facilitates individuals pursuing their own good, you could translate to individuals pursuing goods yeah right because that is what grips people as right for them yeah so i i i'd love to move on now to talk about um going from talking about the nature of religion as it's conceived and discussed uh in popular discourse today uh to talking specifically about religious liberty um and in particular ways in which um religious theorists have attempted to um, argue for religious liberty. So if we maybe if we frame this around some of the examples you use. So um, uh, an example you um, bring up 
a, a couple of times is of a, I think it's a German cantor at a Catholic church who is divorced and remarried, um, who uh, loses his job because he is engaged in what, according to Catholic tradition, is polygamy. Um, bigamy, yeah. Bigamy. Bigamy. Um, and uh, uh, and uh, takes the church to court over that. Is that right? Yeah. Um, then we've also got uh, examples from the UK of um, religious or Christian um, adoption agencies who want to uh, uh, only serve married heterosexual couples um, for religious reasons um, and the controversy around that. We could also think of, you know, the famous example of the Christian baker not wanting to um, bake a cake for a, a gay wedding Um and then I, I suppose then in, at the moment in Australia, we could think about laws coming in that, that um, uh, remove exemptions on the confessional. Um, all these examples are examples where um, either exemptions arising from the uh, special status of religion um, within um, the law uh, or when there's competing con- uh, in, conflicting interests between, say, a minority group and a individual or religious group's self-determination. Um, so I wonder whether you could briefly ca- categorise different approaches. How have, and I, I, I want to flag at the beginning that each of those cases is different um, and the reasoning behind um, uh, why they need to be, they, they do or do not need to be protected by law. Um, each of those will, I imagine, be distinct. But how, how have uh, religious scholars, legal scholars, sought to defend the idea of religious liberty? Okay, so, I mean, the particular cases themselves, I'll just put to one side for a moment, but on, on how, um, you know, what I refer to sometimes as Christian writers on religious liberty mm. um, discuss religious liberty. So there's a chapter in the book on number four, I think, where I go through um, John Finnett's and the New Natural Law, Richard Garnett and Freedom of the Church mm-hmm. um, and Nicholas Walterstorff and sphere, notions of sphere sovereignty. I'll put to one side finesse because that can, uh, has some complications, but um, and it's also not, I think, a dominant way of thinking. The So the first one there, let's take this one, um, Liberty of the Church, um, Libertas Ecclesia, right? A phrase you get in Magna Carta, for example. Um, and... Authors, especially coming out of the United States, who argue for libertas ecclesia, they're, they're saying that there's a jurisdictional limit to civil authority in which it cannot intrude upon the liberties of the church. It provides a kind of bar, a border that it shouldn't cross. Now, the re- now that tries to draw from um, uh, a history of church-state or church-civil authority engagement that goes back as, at least as far as Pope Gregory the, um, um, the Seventh. Um, but what it turns into is actually a version of liberal pluralism. So basically what they argue is that the state should uh, has no competence to intrude upon the church, and that's important, they say, because it means we have a limited state. Yep. And the point is, not just for the church, but for press, for this, for this, there's a limited state that um, uh, is neutral as re- with respect to matters of religion and so on. Hmm. Um and the reason we want that is because then we can create factional differences. Right. Right? Factional differences in the sense of, 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 of pluralistic kind. 
So all these different groups like churches, other religious bodies and so on will in some ways operate at civil society and kind of in almost in a perpetual tension or competition with each other so that no single group could then claim civil authority. And that protects us, right? So a limited state then protects us from the notion that a single group could claim authority mm. and impose itself upon others, right? So I call this a version of liberal pluralism because what it's essentially then saying is that we protect the church for the sake of freedom, right? Mm. So it's not actually articulating entirely, although there are um, there are there are points that point towards us about what the church is good for in a political community, right? Yep. Rather, it's saying, and this draws from, say, John Courtney Murray, mm. that um, you protect, basically, the state is there to protect freedom. It's, he says, it, Murray says at one point that the state knows nothing of the ends of the church, mm. right? Um, so, what you're doing is you're just simply protecting the existence of these multiple communities for the sake of liberty, yeah. right? So, that they can keep on going in this kind of factional difference or factional competition, and I'm critical of that because uh, I think, well, if the point is liberty, then you get back to the paradigm that liberal egalitarians raise, which is when there are conflicts of liberty, mm. the universal law of the state is meant to settle those conflicts. Yeah. And so why can't it settle it by applying that universal law as against, uh, say, one instance of liberty like the church? Why is this one instance of liberty more important than any other instance of liberty, mm. right? So that's one uh, version, liberty of the church. Another is um, Nicholas Waltertorf talking about sphere sovereignty and what he calls the mechanical state, right? Now, sphere sovereignty, those you know, comes from Abraham Kuyper, former Dutch prime minister and uh, reformed um, scholar. And, um, and his idea there is that there's these created orders, um, education, family, the state, the church, and they each occupy a sphere of competency. Mm. And those spheres are independent of one another. They cannot, um, they cannot encroach upon others. Now, immediately I have a problem with this because what is the sphere of the church? You know, if you follow Augustine, the church is more like a practice. Mm. Yes, it has central manifestations, but it actually goes out into all of life, right? Mm. So what is the sphere of the church? And it seems to echo then that notion of sphere differentiation. You have the state, secular, occupying a distinct logic. You have the church, religious, occupying a distinct distinct logic. And I think that interpretation of it is then furthered in Walter Stoff's writing because he says explicitly that the state is to be mechanical. Its job on Walter Stoff's reading is to simply facilitate what he calls the excellence of freedom. Um, he says that he even argues that St. Paul in Romans uh, argues that um, St. Paul is like a proto-American mm. constitutionalist. The point of the state is just simply to protect liberty. Yeah. And again, you then get into this problem. Well, why the particular liberty of this group mm. as opposed to others, for example? That's one problem, as well as, I think, a problem of how you then understand what the purpose of political community actually is. Yeah. Walter Source completely against the notion that uh, political authority exists for the purposes of virtuous ends, right? Mm. Um, so that's two. And then another one would be um, probably what you could think about as like uh, various forms of Benedict option type claims. Yeah. So we discussed this previously with um, an episode on Rob Dreher's book, The Benedict Option. Mm -hmm. um, I just saw in the New College Lectures, for example, Professor Patrick Parkinson from um, UQ um, draws on this quite extensively mm. to argue that we must get over the notion of Christendom 
and uh, you know build arcs or build our own intentional communities, yeah. our own local commitments. And as we said in that episode on Benedict Option, it almost turns into it's just another vo- form of marketplace of ideas or mm. marketplace of options or here marketplace of worldviews. Right, cultivate your own backyard in mm. relation to then a supposedly neutral state. And all the problems we raise there that you can raise again, you know, is this truly a good form of Christian politics? You know, kind of build your own arcs and mm. float away or in order to hopefully one day come back. Um, does it uh, simply echo a notion of um, liberal choice, yeah. right? Um, and and then Dreyer argues that the, you still must be committed to a state that, while neutral with respect to these groups, protects religious liberty well why is it going to do so yeah if the goal if the job is just simply to protect the liberty of different and not necessarily religious mm. um uh spheres or or communities for example so you get those those are sort of um other options some people talk about new multiculturalism right where the state just presides over different groups who basically carve out their own identity mm. and again you could kind of question whether that actually is consistent with how Christians at least have traditionally understood the formation of a political community, I think. Um, the last one i just say is um, you get Whiggish narratives. So narratives are sort of the progress of history towards now or whatever height we get to. Robert Lewis, uh, uh, Louis Wil- uh, Lewis Wilkin, um, has this in his book, um, Liberty and the Things of God, um, Christian Origins of Religious Freedom. He starts mm. from patristics who argued, you know, some patristics like Tertullian, talked about the necessity of freedom in choosing religion, right? Mm. And what he meant there is against being coerced into religious practices. And I argue that what he what he refers to there is the nature of religion. It must demand a certain actual acceptance and subjectivity of the person yep. because God demands a free offering of the person, right? Yep. But then Wilkin takes this then through to Protestant reformers and says they um, – discovered or uh, this two kingdoms approach in which there is a sphere of the soul that cannot be attacked by the civil authority and there is a sphere of the body which the civil authority regulates and he says this creates you know sort of um or founds religious liberty and in his argument it comes to fruition in american constitutionalism where you get say james madison says um that um that there is a sphere of conscience that has to be protected, and conscience means the individual's capacity to determine what is mm. the end of religion, right? Now, that seems actually, if you could read that critically, as a narrative presenting the very problem that I've trying to be articulate, uh, artic- I've been trying to articulate. It also has the uh, perverse, as others have pointed out, this demarcation of the sphere of the soul and the sphere of the body leaves the person themselves, because persons are bodies, yeah. entirely subject to the disciplining of the state. Yeah, right. Yeah. So this is a this is a common criticism criticism of um, Protestant reformers. So there are other subcurrents of people talking about religious freedom. Like there is a really interesting little subcurrent about people who argue religious liberty is necessary to promote economic freedom. Right. That's a whole little cottage industry mm. um but yeah those those would be the sort of now those are all variants i think of um variations of sort of liberal pluralism and various ideas like that that my book at least is trying to um say are problematic mm. and and i'm am i right in thinking that they all claim augustine they all they all seem to be offering a different interpretation of augustine um you could so uh, I don't think all of them are like <laughs> Rob Trey is not talking about Augustine. No, no, he's, no. he's doing 
no. whatever he's doing. So if, um, I'm thinking in particular the nature of the city, the two cities. Yeah, well. so so Walterstorff actually interestingly tries to say his view is contrary to Augustine and then he okay. and then he reads Augustine wrong. Yeah. Um and actually um yeah, just just reads him wrong. So Augustine's kind of irrelevant to what he's saying, I think. But yeah, you could. So some people take Augustine to when Augustine says the city of God and the city of and the earthly city, mm. some people read him as saying that the earthly city is basically like um, the Roman Imperium okay. or something like that, and it's the thing that we have to just put to one side. Yep. Uh, while we pilgrim as the city of God to the eschaton. Yep. And so you get someone like Christopher Insull will say something like the city of God matters not one jot to sort of temporal politics okay. because it is a, like a it's a hori- it's an eschatological horizon that offers a kind of criticism mm. but doesn't actually tell us how to live life together as a plural political community, right? And others have said similarly. So there are arguments to say that Augustine in, in a kind of more liberal reading or as a proto-liberal, right? Mm. That he, um, you know, the, the earthly city becomes on that vein sort of the space of secular neutrality that yeah. manages plural communities. Yeah. One of those communities happens to be the pilgrim city of God, okay. right? Yeah. I, I think that makes no sense. Okay. Right? I think it makes no sense because I think it's a, it's a, it's a weird anachronistic reading to read back like read modernity back into Augustine. But um, Augustine seems to be kind of the hero of your account. (laughs) (laughs) Augustine and and a couple of other people. Can you introduce us briefly to, so these are are some of the competing approaches to religious liberty and you've got an account that you call the ecclesiological account or the ecclesial account, ecclesiological. Ecclesiological, I think, yeah. Ecclesiological account. Not What's sure. the ecclesiological what account? Maybe it's a verb and adjective form. Anyway, <laughs> what is it? Um, yeah, so you're right. Augustine becomes um, littered throughout this, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it draws from the notion that I said before with Augustine that when Augustine talked about the city of God, some people said he didn't identify that with the church, mm. um, whereas I think he did. He, uh, John Neville Figgis talks about him identifying the church as the sort of the kernel mm. um, of the manifestation of the city of God. And um, but when so then when Augustine talks about church, there is the there is the the basilica, but he actually means as well then the community itself centering around the basilica, and then the expansion of the city of God through cities, kingdoms, principalities, and so on. Um, so s- the city of God then for Augustine becomes more like a practice or church becomes more like a practice in which, um, you know, it is the tradition of um, loving one's neighbor and loving God in manif- manifold contexts, mm. right? Education, welfare, provision, um, worship, everything, right? Mm. And and against those liberal readings of Augustine, I argue along with others that Augustine envisaged that this city of God would encapsulate all life, right? Um, that the even civil authorities would come in some respect to have some relationship to and serve the city of God. Mm. Um, not not as some people argue that the that the Pope, for example, exercised sort of hierocratic power over mm. imperial authorities or something like that, but that civil authorities remain civil authorities, mm. but that they exercise their power in light of the ends of the city of God, like, you know, judgment in light of mercy, for example. Yep. So then the ecclesiological account refers to, you know, there's a point taken from um, Graham Ward and John Milbank as well, you know, the idea that 
ecclesiology becomes social theory. Mm. How we think about true community in an ecclesiological sense becomes how we think about associating well as a community itself, right? Um, and so then this leads to the argument, right, that what is religious liberty about? It's about free creation of community, solidarity, fraternity, and charity. And then I break that down into um, different components to say um, religious liberty is directed towards the common good. Mm-hmm. All right, so this is different to an idea that religious liberty is directed towards ultimately some conception of ethical individualism. No, it's directed towards the common good, which is about um, what is the shape of living well together? Mm. What does that look like? Um, is it peace? Is it simply the regulation of individual rights? What is it? Uh, so it's a dr- about direction towards a common good. And then I say it's about... Uh, what John Neville figures called a community of communities. Mm. So it's about this one community together. We are a community that is seeking a shared purpose, Mm -hmm. but that is manifested in this multiple and complex layering of different groups. So whereas in liberal writing, you get what Milbank calls simple space, the unmediated relationship between the sovereign who represents all the individual, all the interests of individuals, right? The law is supposed to, simply um, further the maximal um, rights of all individuals, for example. Mm. Instead, you get what he calls in complex space or describes as like a Gothic cathedral, right? In which multiple groups create different layerings, embossing, innovations, creative endeavors, and so on to have this coherence that is nevertheless complex, right? And so we talk about, you know, in religious liberty terms, we talk about it's not just, like I said before, it's not just the church, but it's education, hmm. it's welfare, it's charity, it's, um, you know, worshipping communities, it's um, people operate, um, you know, with moral markets. Yep. Um, all these different things, guilds, associations, whatever. And so that's, that's, that's a thread that runs through so much Christian thought, right? This hmm. plural, complex layering of multiple sites of authority. Yep. And then the last point is to talk about, well, if we talk about the common good and what these groups are then coordinated towards, I say solidarity, fraternity, charity is sort of Christian ends, right? Where charity is that love of God, love of neighbor. And I developed it in a sort of personalist way to say, you know, it's about um, understanding each individual as integrally needed mm. for their gifts and talents and forming this and what they offer and form as part of a community. Yeah. So... Then if we think about, say, the Catholic Adoption Agency that has a particular uh, understanding of family um, where they believe that adoption is the reparation um, of family, uh, reparation um, or restoring the possibility of children to Mm. couples that can't have children um, and they believe that where human society should be ordered in such a way that that children emerge from the um, love between a male and a female, and that's the basis of family. So, in your account, the the exemption given to that agency from non discrimination laws is not founded on the agency as expressing the interests of um, a, 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 the congregate interests of a bunch of individual believers um, over and against the interests of, say, uh, um, the LGBT 
community. Um, it's more about recognizing that 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 agency is bound by a conception of the common good or, or something along those lines that that you're you're actually understanding the substance so that the state needs to understand the substance of the position hmm. being given by the Catholic adoption agency yeah that that's where I end up that that it's that it's actually about engaging with the substance of it is and it is part of it is it is although understood by others to be not right mm. it is nevertheless still part of our common good right? right so that's kind of where I end up but but the first thing to point out is is that they're typically not given an exemption right so the whole controversy over catholic do- adoption agencies is mm. that they're not allowed to operate according to this principle where they only serve heterosexual married couples mm. right so this is the big controversy in the united kingdom right where Prime Minister Blair said, I start with the general proposition that discrimination of any kind anywhere is not permissible, Mm. right? And so then they try to litigate this. And what you get, and this is, I think, rooted in this liberal egalitarian account being discussed, what you end up getting in the courts and through the charity tribunal there is this argument that they shouldn't be allowed to um, discriminate in this way or or put more (laughs) neutrally to hold that ethos. Yeah. because it would affect the dignity interests of the general public. Yeah. Right. So there's an idea here that this group has stepped outside of a private zone, say of worship or private conscience or mm. whatever, into a public domain, which some people say, like theorists will say, is the domain of the state. Yep. So they explicitly talk in these terms. So charity and education, for example, are just simply things that belong to the state. Mm. And anybody else engaging in them is doing so as some sort of devolved agent. Right? Yeah. That's the sort of paradigm. It's almost platonic, isn't it? It's like a bureaucratized platonic, um, you know. We get to participate in it. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm, I was just thinking about more of the rearing of the children being the responsibility of the polis. <laughs> right. And things like that. Yeah. 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 Which, you know, I mean, I'm not, this is not an argument against public schooling and things like this, right? Mm. But it's fascinating that that's the, that's the paradigm mm. in which, and, and so then what they see is because you've entered the domain of the state explicitly mm. as a uh, considerate, you are now subject to all the interests of the public. Yeah. Right. So not so if you remained and this the the paradigm is if you remained a church secluded to yourself, mm. then that's fine because it's just like you and your buddy and so on and you all mutually agree in a kind of contract association. Yeah. But that's not a universal even though. Some people even think that church Well And church why wouldn't you? Yeah. Because if your if your point is to say once you step into a public mm. right what is a church? Hmm. What is a typical parish church? It understands itself as existing for the community, right? Hmm. It's not just simply a self-selecting group Hmm. of contracted individuals. So yes, you take that argument to its logical conclusion, you could apply apply laws as against all associations, Hmm. right? So there's that. But then once you've stepped in, they say, and so then they say there's a dignity interest, namely if it is known Hmm. that this group um, holds the view that, um, children should be placed with heterosexual married couples. Yep. That is an a an offence or a, a contrary to the dignity of communicative harm or something. Uh, like yeah, that. communicative harm, a status harm, yeah. to call it right, to the dignity of those who disagree or mm. those who are um, in same sex relationships and so on. Right. Mm. And so there's a communicative harm in the sense that they know that this exists. It's not necessarily that they're a, they're a you know, they they're not went, being denied a service. They're not it's, being denied a service. Yeah. It's about that sort. So the point there is that that's the paradigm, hmm. right? And then the question is, well, 
is that the way you compose these things? Yeah. So in my argument, you you think more about how do you compose multiple groups in a society to orientate towards the to orient towards a common good, right? Um, these things exist and they co-constitute what we consider public. So there isn't a rarefied notion of the public in advance of these very groups. Yeah. Right. We don't then impose some notion, say this is public and so you must do this, but actually these groups like schools and so on are constituting what we mean by the public. Mm. And then, you know, the argument turns to, well, we do want, we, uh, on my argument saying, you know, this is directed towards a common good, Mm. but it's, as you said, you know, then you get into the details of actually going, well, what are, what are these groups actually arguing? Yeah. In which case you're doing precisely what you're saying. You're talking about restoring community in a context of gender, gender differentiation. Yeah. Now, why do they argue for gender differentiation? What's the theological claims there and so on? You unpack that, which I try to do hmm. in the book. And then I also unpack the sort of, you know, between the traditionalist and the revisionist views of same-sex unions. I unpack both hmm. of them discussing how, you know, um, uh, arguments for same-sex relationships can be framed within Christian discourse like this as well. Mm. Anyway, but the point being that they're both available and they're both there and you can see them as what Milbank then calls displaced agreement where we don't agree mm. on the specific conclusion, yeah. but we do agree on the goods that are being pursued, right? Yeah. And, we, and, 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 and in a way that is not sourced and solely like animus. Yeah. So uh, and anyway, this, it's, this is, it's probably this, sounds quite complicated, it, but that's where I try to take it in the in the last yeah. subset of chapter. So chapter. It, and uh, so in essence, we're saying what you're arguing is that you need to pay attention to the particular theological argument for the the moral disagreement that's taking place, yes. and you don't just have a a priori um, principle of um, I don't know religious liberty or non-interference or something like that um, or well you're saying what non-discrimination what grounds here their claim of religious liberty yeah. what grounds it is not yeah. that they're just trying to appeal to their liberty or their yeah. nick of the woods their little uh, parcel yeah. of land their little sense of personal autonomy or collective autonomy yeah. but actually you're they're appealing to that they're contributing to what say even like Luke Bretherton would call um, uh, goods in common, yeah, right. That, that that they can participate in goods in common in a manner that shapes a common life that I think we can understand in theological terms. So, and this this might be unfair to kind of tack on the end of the conversation, but what are, what would be the limits then of what would be permissible for a religious community to? Um, to do in pursuit of its so uh, conception is, of the common good. This is so one of the. I'm thinking yeah. of things like female genital mutilation. Yeah. Um, um, say uh, organizations that have kind of theological arguments for racist ideology um, and, and things like that. Is, is there a way of kind of distinguishing between a good theological argument? Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, I really, I really appreciate the concept of misplaced agreement, for example. Displaced. Di- misplaced. Displaced agreement, where you are, you are kind of understanding that they are pursuing something good, uh, they're just um, doing it in a route that you don't necessarily agree with. But there are some elements of, of religious out. communities yeah. where you'd kind of actually go, no, that is fundamentally contrary yeah. to uh, human dignity. And how do you do that without kind of special pleading um, where, you know... I'll, I mean, like, I'll, I'll the, you look, the, ar- the argument around, you know, uh, the comparison to racial discrimination and so on, I think that requires a lot more unpacking. 
because at certain levels you could see them as the same thing, yeah. right? If you frame them as instances of identity and a script of identity or fundamental identity or biological even or things mm. like this, there, there are ways in which they could be anal- analogized and so on. I, I just don't think that really typically actually grapples with arguments that traditionalists make. Mm. Um, you know, as you see, if you take same-sex unions compared to interracial unions and the objection to that, are they the same thing? Are they the same sort of arguments being made? You know, typically with respect to interracial unions being banned, it was understood there was a common conception of what marriage was. It was just there was a statutory overlay prohibiting these kinds of marriages. Yeah, right. right? So uh, interracial marriage was still a marriage. In it was the still eyes a marriage. They just the they just said no, thank you. You know, yeah. they said no. You know, yeah. and stopped them from actually taking yes. place. Whereas anyway, the traditionalist account is a marriage. Qua it's marriage an ontological is, account, yeah, and, it's, yeah. and it goes a bit different, okay. right? So I think paying attention to the different arguments means we end up in different places. That's not to say that there aren't analogies to be made, and nor is it to say that um, within the church itself or within religious groups and so on that you can't, you you know, um, that this is a these are knocked out arguments, you know. But the but then on your point generally about um, you know what are the limits? Yeah, that's a huge question, right? Mm. And uh, the the way I go about thinking, at least starting to think about this is that at the moment with some of these arguments from a liberal egalitarian vein, the 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 basis for intervening can be quite, what I'd say, thin. Okay. So you gave the example of Schuth, right? The yeah. German um, uh, organ master yep. um, in a Catholic parish in Germany mm. who left his wife and started up with another uh, woman. And I don't know if they were married, but, the, you know, he was attending the church still with someone mm. else and this sort of thing. Or well, they couldn't get divorced probably. So he mm. was, you know, living with her in the nature of marriage, right? Yep. Um, and the church says this is bigamy and so on. And the court says no church you have to take into account. Now, it doesn't resolve the ultimate what ultimately happens to Mr. Truth, but it does say you have to take into account his self-determination, mm. his self-determination, which goes to his capacity and privacy rights to start up a new family and so mm. on, right? So here you have this interesting paradigm in which you've got the Catholic church potentially having to give cognizance to someone who wants to be Catholic in their own unique way. Yep. Right, contrary to the ethos of that group, yep. so it's based on self determination. You get this this peppers through different cases as well. So the intervention here is because it's contrary to a notion of a person's self determination or their idea of their own authenticity or something like that. Mm-hmm. Right, so that it's a thinner sort of intervention basis. Um, whereas you know you may think of something more like dignity of personhood mm. demands something more for intervention. Like, are you um, cultivating something that is holistically against the talents and gifts of this this uh, this people within mm. this group or something like this. Yeah. I don't know what the, um, uh, you know, and I'm almost reluctant to say as a kind of like, here's the, here's the rule rather than a prudential mm. point, right? I do say at the end of the book that um, we need to think much more, if we're thinking through these lines of Christian argument, especially theologically informed argument, thinking about how it's not just about liberty in mm. a negative sense, although it absolutely is, there is absolutely elements of that. You know, you to be a community means you have to not be entirely subject to, say, the state. Mm. Um, but also then thinking about, well, liberty allied to the good, right? So the exercise of liberty can't be um, wholly harmful mm. or it can't be, um, as you were saying, contrary to some notion of dignity. Mm. Um, you know, Augustine has this, 
discussion where he says, how can we say someone is free when they're subject to sin? Mm. You know, it's the same sort of thing, right? Like f- true freedom is pursuing the good. Mm. Um, so, you know, and you do get cases where the court will talk about something can't be contrary to dignity. So one judge says, for example, if you did have a religious group that banned, that excluded people on the grounds of race, we would say that's not religion. Mm. You know, and I think that's just something right in there, right? goes back to my fundamental point. You're trying to narrative, narr- narrate mm. what religion is. And some things we're probably going to have to say. We would want to say this is simply outside of what mm. truly pursuing solidarity, fraternity, and community means. You know, as capaciously as we may understand that mm. to allow for what I talk about as a liberty of analogous groups and so mm. on, there will be things that fall outside of that. I don't. I haven't given in this bright lines but i think you know what you're touching on is yeah that's a mm. fundamental issue we're probably out of time there's so many other things that we could talk about at this point perhaps we'll return to this uh topic at another uh in another episode but thanks so much for for joining us i should mention as well that joel's book post-liberal religious liberty forming communities of charity is available now through uh oxford university no. cambridge university press <laughs> they're not the same one <laughs> Cambridge University Press. Um, yes, and um, or, you know, it is quite pricey, so just ask me and I'll send you a photocopy. <laughs> <laughs> Joking. Uh, and we'll put up a link to to, to where that's available um, on our social medias. Speaking of which, uh, please follow us on uh, Twitter. You can find us at UCAT, that's E-U-C-A-T underscore podcast, and follow us on, like us on uh, Facebook by just searching The Catastrophe. Uh, please drop us a review on whatever platform you listen to. That really helps us out. And please uh, share us around as well with anyone who might be interested. Uh, thanks so much uh, for, for joining us for this two parts on uh, Joel's new book. And um, we'll talk to you in a little while. Bye.